Griffiths again. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Pure Football Podcast, the podcast that gives you the unbiased Scottish voice, giving you in-depth insight into football from the local park to the World Cup. And my name's Gavin Miller, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host Owen. Owen, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, Gavin. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Really good, thanks, mate. So, I guess last week we were subjected to some pretty harsh uh, reality uh, with Scottish football at the international stage. So I thought this week we would try and keep it quite positive, or as at least as positive as we can. Um, how are you feeling about that one? Do you think we'll be able to deliver Scottish football in a positive light? Uh, I don't know. Dower is the kind of baseline for me normally, so I'll do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, okay, so tonight we said that we were going to talk about sort of three things um, that were pretty positive in Scottish football. So we've seen some fresh investment um, in Scottish football recently, which we'll get on to. Uh, Ollie Burke has got the opportunity of a, a fresh start at Sheffield United and we've got a, a match in focus with uh, Motherwell and St Johnston with the return of domestic football. So uh, I think these are some pretty interesting topics so let's just get straight into the, the investment. So there was news last week that Dunfermline had received investment from a German consortium um, fronted by I think it was someone that worked fairly high up at St Pauli. Um, along with some other investors. We've seen American investment into Falkirk from uh, people that work at Orlando City. Um, I guess just uh, it's not investment as such, but we've seen St Mirren uh, creating a partnership with Australia's second tier side, uh, is it Para Knights SC? Um, so, yeah, and then we've obviously also had Atlanta United and Dave Cormack at Aberdeen as well. So there's quite a lot... I guess there's been an influx, I guess, of investment in Scottish football with, you know, an increase in continental relationships. Or what do you think has been the sort of cause of this, just on a general spectrum? Um, well, I think that's a difficult kind of thing to say. So maybe I guess what we should do first of all is kind of dig into each of these. Um, so we'll just kind of go through the kind of four that you mentioned there and have a wee chat about yep. what they kind of are. And then I guess based on what we think about each of those, we yep. can maybe see if we can draw any kind of line through them. So Dunfermline first, right? So as you pointed out, it's a group of uh, four Germans. Uh, there's some with some football background. So you mentioned the guy, Thomas Megel, who was a manager at FC St. Pauli for a wee bit. Before that, he um, was in the uh, set up there, managing the second team and being an assistant. And he also played for them. I think he, he managed about 100 appearances for them, played for like other clubs in Germany as well. So an experienced former footballer. Um, the other people within the consortium seem to be people with uh, finance or business background. And it seems as though they've been kind of looking around Europe for some time for a club to invest in. They were initially going to purchase a, a 75.1% share of Dunfermline Athletic, but that's reduced, I think, due to kind of COVID-19 and the kind of impacts and you know maybe the uncertainty around that, to uh, 30% equity at this point but with the option to kind of increase that in the future. And three of the four Germans in the kind of deal will sit on the board. 
Um, the investors said that at Dunfermline Athletic, we found a club with a long tradition and heritage run by a professional board of directors located in a community firmly standing behind its local club. So, you know, I think they were keen to kind of, you know, convey why that's, you know, a kind of good match for them. And the Dunfermline Athletic chairman, Ross MacArthur, stated that, quote, the involvement of the German consortium who are called DAFC Football GmbH as a shareholder um, should now be transformative for the club. We believe that this change to our ownership structure will be an enormous step forward in the achievement of our goals. But crucially, our culture and community ethos will not be diluted. It was abundantly clear during our discussions that DAFC Football GmbH share the same beliefs, morals and ethics as ourselves. The DAFC board realised that not only did we require further capital, but that we would also benefit from fresh ideas, knowledge, relationships and innovation to help us achieve our goals. The investors have a deep and sound knowledge of football and of commercial marketing, um, which means they bring very much more than fresh investment capital. So I think that um, comment from MacArthur about this being more than just about capital, but the investment brings new ideas, ways of thinking, a wider network of relationships is maybe potentially a theme that might link each of these kind of investments. So maybe kind of pin that to come back to you, but Gavin, um, to move on to Aberdeen, right? So the Aberdeen situation, they themselves have described their situation as a strategic partnership aimed at boosting both their football and commercial operations. And again, that kind of echoes the the language that's been used with Dunfermline, right? That it's kind of strategic, it's a partnership. It's aimed at both the football side of things, but the kind of commercial side of things. Um, I guess that in Aberdeen's case, maybe what they're trying to say is that you think that both clubs, that's them and Atlanta United, can learn from how each other have done things, can share expertise and contacts, can build economies of scale, basically reducing their costs due to their size and so on. Um, another kind of interesting factor with the Aberdeen situation is that um, the Atlanta United president, Darren Eels, now sits on Aberdeen's board, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's there and with, uh, you know, the chairman, Dave Cormack. Um, and he's kind of viewing the two clubs under the kind of same umbrella. And, and he said that in terms of this relationship, there are good win-wins for both parties. He said that sometimes you hear of these partnerships between clubs and there's no kind of skin in the game from the outside investor um, that they want to show commitment. Uh, and he also said that, Atlanta United had been on a lookout for a partner club for some time uh, and they're looking at any way that they can punch above their weight. Um, I guess the thing that sticks out for me with the Aberdeen thing, and maybe we can come back to a wee bit, is that, yeah, I get the idea of having a strategic partnership and it's obviously a positive thing for companies to look at ways to learn from each other and, and kind of you know share expertise and contacts. But the kind of nagging thing for me around that one is, What's in it for Atlanta United? Mm-hmm. Um, I can see why what Aberdeen might be wanting to learn about and stuff, but I'm I'm just I don't know I'm just a wee bit kind of kind of that that's a kind of nagging question in my mind. The the guy at Atlanta United said that the draw for them in terms of Aberdeen is Aberdeen's heritage and long footballing history, and and I'm just I don't know. Generally, there seems to be a lot of nice talk in each of these investments about maybe wanting to do something with a club that has a community and kind of heritage and stuff. It's maybe just making me feel a little bit cynical when I hear these things. Mm -hmm. But we'll we'll come back and kind of touch on that, I guess. The Falkirk one, right? So to move on to that, 
So Falkirk put a club statement a few days ago stressing um, that there were can, kind of some recent appointments to the board and, and you know a new head of football operations, and they were talking about a kind of balanced ownership plan in the future, or a kind of partial final ownership setup, and they also announced um, some agreed investment. Um, the agreed investment is from a kind of husband and wife team, um, a partnership who are based in the USA. Um, the guy founded Orlando City, who are now an MLS club. Um, and before that, he was a director at Stoke City. Uh, and the woman, his wife, um, seems to have long experience as a, a business consultant, basically. Uh, and it seems as though they have had some sort of footballing consultancy um, in the last few years as well that kind of looked at, I don't know, you know, advising clubs, basically, and things. Um, so it looks like they have fairly extensive business and football experience. The club, Falkirk, say that the investors have been looking for a club to invest in in Europe for some time. And they're not intending to become owners, but, quote, see huge potential in Falkirk to build a successful community-focused club which operates successfully in the Scottish Premiership. Right, so that's the Falkirk one. And again, you know that there's this language around you know community yeah. focus, things like that. But also there's the factor that this is not where they've looked first, right? That you know they've been looking all around steps, Europe. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a kind of common theme again, those two things that you're kind of seeing throughout this, right? Um, St Mirren, right? So the final one. So St Mirren, um, they also described their recent news as a strategic partnership, which seems to be the sort of buzzword around these things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're partnering up, Gavin, as you said, with the very Australian-named Para Hills Night Soccer Club. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the area is called Para Hills, and you know, for some reason, we're supposed to imagine guys on horseback with uh, lances mm-hmm. playing football. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Anyway, they play in the fancily named South Australian National Premier League, which is a semi-pro league. Uh, I think it's kind of essentially the second tier of football in Australia. Yep. And St Mirren say that the aim of this is, quote, a mutually beneficial long-term relationship between both clubs with focus on the development of young footballers and coaches. Again, there's mention of potential commercial opportunities, though in a rather vague way. And again, there's mention of knowledge exchange, you know, uh, which is quite similar with each of the other ones, right? Particularly the Aberdeen one in terms of, you know, commercial uh, possibilities and, you know, the, the idea that these partners will be able to tell each other how they've done things, what went right, where they fucked up and, uh, you know, <laughs> can kind of improve, um, I guess, on the pitch and off the pitch. Right, so like we've, we've kind of gone through each of those, and I think you can see that, yeah, they're all a little bit different, um, but there are some kind of threads there, potentially, in a way, mm-hmm. at least these things are being spoken about at this point in time and, and how they might have happened. Um, I'm not too sure if I'm sure, and, and maybe you can get your opinion on this as well, Gavin, but I'm not feeling an indication from any of the deals that there's any specific attracting any of these investors to Scotland. To me, they're all pretty much examples of investors who've been looking for opportunities in football for some time. And our clubs are maybe the ones where the opportunity has come up. And and that might just be by chance. It might be that, on the other hand, it could be that maybe clubs in Scotland have been a little bit slow to take on these things. Yeah. And maybe, you know, lots of the other opportunities are gone in other countries. Um, there, there is lots of this kind of nice talk about wanting to do something with a kind of community-based club. As I said, I'm a little bit cynical about that, but you know it's it's positive that that's the noises that are being said. Um, I would say that in general, I think these are just investment opportunities, um, and and again, the thing I'm a little bit stumped about is the appeal for the investors. So I think obviously it's it would be 
know, it's great. You know, the guys at Dunfermline, for instance, they look like they're going to have a lot of knowledge to kind of share and stuff. And obviously the goal for them is to get um, Dunfermline, you know, back to where Dunfermline would think they should be. Um, but I think for me in particular, like I said, the one with Aberdeen, um, where there's quite a lot of investment, I'm not entirely clear on what they think they're going to get back. Um, and in terms of like getting up, say for Dunfermline or Falkirk from League One to or the Championship to be a solid top six Premiership club, um, I would have thought that the financial returns on that are um, well, maybe they're a lot better than what I imagine in my mind, um, but I'm not too sure. I guess the reasons to do this and why this might be happening. Well, first of all. It's just globalization, right? And people looking for investment opportunities everywhere they can. Maybe COVID-19 means that you're widening your search for opportunities. Maybe you're kind of offsetting local risk. Maybe Scotland's a good place to talk about community clubs, given the kind of history of football and stuff. So maybe that's a kind of good PR angle. Maybe they're looking at setting up some sort of partnership clubs, and that's why they've been kind of looking all over. And, and you know, maybe particularly for the guys at Atlanta United, maybe Aberdeen is the first of potentially multiples in different countries. Um, maybe Scotland's relatively lax work permit rules for footballers yeah. as a selling point, you know, um, all these kind of things. But can I can I hear your thoughts of, of you know, yeah. why, why, whether you think there is a kind of... Yeah, so I, I think there's, there's a few things. I think it was interesting you mentioned about COVID. I think that's probably played a, a bigger part in this. I think there's a number of clubs in Scotland, as there is probably across the globe, that were you know, uh, the financial impact was huge. So the opportunity for return on investment in these sort of situations where you maybe are, are paying 50% less than what you would have paid uh, pre-COVID, obviously it's speculation, I can't claim to know any sort of financials, but you would imagine that there's certainly been some sort of dip in what you have to invest um, or what you have to pay to invest in these clubs. I do think that there's certainly, there's money in transfers, right? And I think that this is where the investors will maybe be looking at their way of getting their money back. For example, we've just seen Livingston sell a player for you know reportedly mm-hmm. two million pounds. So if you can get someone in, um, even if it's just a you know a move to Rangers or Celtic, someone that you know with a sure. with a relaxed work permits, you only need to get one or two of those, and then you've you've probably made more than you. Mm-hmm. You would from anything else. Um, I do think that there's, there's probably we're probably going to see these in, investments probably increase over time. I don't think buying small shares in these sort of clubs is a way to make money. So I think what these are, these are almost like feeler moves. I think a lot of clubs, especially when you use words like community, a, a bit of a hostile takeover and taking away, you know, with the foreign investment. Uh, an example that sort of came to mind was you know uh, Blackburn with the Venkies. And what happened there from it being a community club and then when they had the foreign investment, it was like the, the soul was ripped out of the club. So I think the, these sort of uh, smaller stakes coming in as a, a positive, as a mm. this is investment rather than a takeover, like the those two words are, mm. are really different and I think they drive different emotions, especially for you know really passionate fans. So I, sure, I, I agree with that. I, th- I think the, the press releases, particularly the Dunfermline one, they're very clear, both parties, in terms of trying to make that clear. Like the Germans were very clear they didn't want to be kind of you know, absentee owners. 
Um, and I think there was a fair bit of talk about, you know, developing youth academy and stuff like that. So, you know, kind of having that, that local feel. Yeah. But you, you do make a, a good point that, you know, I guess ultimately, and, and I do think, you know, as much as, you know, you have to hope that these things lead to, you know, better kind of football operations and set up and, you know, sustainable long-term improvements for the clubs. It's an investment, right? Um, and obviously people do investments to make money. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's my kind of take on it. Yeah, I think and I think that's the important part of it. There's not a lot of money in Scottish football, so if you're going to invest, you have to have a bit of a, a sort of three to five year strategy. You would imagine, especially with clubs like Falkirk, Dunfermline, you know, you're not going to see an immediate uh, return on your investment within twelve months of whatever your your input is. So you would imagine that these clubs are going to be looking at, okay, so how do we get to the Premier League? What talent can we bring in? How can we then sell them on? Can we use our network to sell these talents on? You know, I, I do think there's going to be a bit of a wider strategy that we're maybe not privy to at this present moment. But what I, what I would say as an overarching point is this is a positive, right? We, we, we need the investment in our game. We need different ideas coming into Scottish football. And yes, we're you're absolutely right, I think, to have a cynical eye on it. But I think rather than a lot of the same old, which we've been used to, you know, I guess the the potential that we might have some positives and some, you know, uh, I guess clubs may be trying to do different things and investing differently. Uh, it's just, it's positive to me. And I, I'm, I guess I'm maybe seeing the, the blue sky sort of picture of it, whereas there's still the element of, you know, these investors at any point could just decide that they, they don't want to be involved because, there's not the money and their their strategy isn't going to plan because you know we we know it can be difficult to you know sort of move the the needle in Scottish football with ideas and approaches so it's just one that we'll have to wait and see but I do think it's a positive overall. Oh yeah, I want to echo that particularly with the things that were being said around the Dunfermline move. Um, I think that the ideas that they were trying to put um, out in the press release there about kind of scouting network in Germany and having some ideas from there about how football clubs should be run, um, that's that's really good, right? You know, if they can drive that into having a youth academy that's built around those principles, um, if they can, you know, set up a kind of uh, really kind of smart, kind of strategic, well-operated football operation side of things, that would be great. And I guess, you know, we, we've seen some positives, I think, at Aberdeen in terms of at least... The communication from Cormac and things yep. like that he seems to be a good leader, um, and there seems to be a fair amount of you know money. Um, I, I guess again, you'd be waiting to see if there's kind of major change for them in the way that they run the business, and and I mean the football and business, you know, and their scouting and their kind of uh, operational side of things. And similarly at Falkirk, Falkirk's maybe one I'm, I've kind of mixed feelings about what I read about the Falkirk one. Um, so the. The, the kind of idea that, that this guy was a, a founder of Orlando City MLS team and so on. I mean, that doesn't really tell you a lot. You know, it could just be that he had the money. Um, you know, yep. he was previously a director at Stoke, and yeah, Stoke made good strides in terms of uh, going up the divisions during his time there, which is a positive. But again, you don't really know what one individual's part was in that. Um, you know, um, but on the other hand, I did read a little bit about their kind of consultancy and I had a look at some of the people who are involved in that and there are people involved in it who worked at the the city Man City football group and stuff like that. So, you know, there must be some very smart people involved um that have expertise in terms of how to run um football setups. So yeah, could be a, a lot of things there. And like you say, 
I guess basically generally you hope the more good people and good ideas there are kicking about, the better, right? That's kind of what you That's want, it, right? right? That's it. Yeah. So I guess it's just one of these things that we'll have to see over time. Um, mm. But I guess just in terms of the recent challenges we faced, I think overall we'll both agree that it's at least positive steps, but it's a wait and see. Um, sure. So I guess let's move on from that then. Let's, so moving back to the actual playing side and I guess a sort of uh, a big move when Ollie Burke, um, who's had his fair share of troubles over the last few years. And I guess before we get into some of the specifics, so just Ollie Burks went from West Brom uh, to Sheffield United. He's going to be working with Chris Wilder, who's quite a, a, I guess a lot of positives have been said about him as a coach. And Ona, I, I wanted to just get your sort of take on a few different things. So so Burke has struggled, you know, in the last 12 months, he's not played a, a lot of football for Alaves. Uh, he was predominantly used off the bench uh, on his loan from, from West Brom. He had a, obviously his period at Leipzig, his big move from Nottingham Forest, only lasted 12 months there before he was sold. I just wonder, is, is Oli Burke the sort of player that's fallen upwards? or, or what, Why do you think clubs continually give him a chance? Uh, that's a good question, right? So you mean falling upwards, particularly in this kind of move now yeah. to, to Sheffield United? Yeah. Um, would we would we be saying that if he wasn't in the Premier League? I mean, you know, is it particularly does it just kind of stick out in our mind because he's gone up a level? Do you mean to the Premier well, League guess, from? Well, I guess uh, West Brom got promoted, right? So he could have been sure. in the Premier League, but I, I guess it's mm. it's a Premier League top half team as well. So all mm. uh, sorry, Sheffield United finished you know the top half last season. I just wondering, you know, he's got his moves to Leipzig. He's had his loan spell at mm. Celtic. Uh, got to play in the Liga. But there's obviously always been questions about his sort of actual end product. So I guess it was just a sort of general opinion on whether he's... Do you think coaches are just maybe attracted to his raw physical talents? Do you think that someone feels like they can untap that? Um, I guess you got to, right? That's probably part of the thing that you're really thinking, you know, deep inside as a coach, that, you know, maybe you can develop that. You also probably think that it's maybe worth a bet, right? His value hasn't, well, I guess we don't really know what his value is in this move because there was, you know, Robinson going the other way. But I guess you probably think that, um, at least if you're wilder in this place, in this situation, that's that's worth a gamble, right? It's a real, relatively low risk um, move and you can probably make back whatever they spend on it you think yep. um, but yeah I, I don't know I, I, I've, I'm i finding it hard to answer the question because <laughs> I think I feel a little bit defensive of him you know when people say things like you know is Burke falling upwards you see people on Twitter saying oh my god if only you know I could have the same agent that Ollie Burke has mm-hmm. it just makes me automatically kind of feel for the guy a little bit so um, yeah, that's probably why I'm okay. uh, rambling even more than normal. Okay. Um, the only <laughs> part of the, the affair. Yeah. The, the move itself, though, right? So I, I think this is a really, really intriguing move. Um, I think Sheffield United are a really interesting club. So there's the you know great kind of recent rise to the Premier League, an incredible first season back in the division. And I think they're a club that have a really good kind of combination of things going on. So they've got, like, you know, in Wilder, a kind of, Smart but straight talking manager, um, somebody who I think clearly kind of cares about his players, but also, you know, probably cares about his players, but has high expectations. Two of them mm-hmm. will um, be keen to kind of improve people that have maybe something to prove. You know, there are a bunch of players who are maybe you know again, um, 
you know, not necessarily packed with stars. Um, you know, probably most of them performing as a group at a higher level than maybe what people might have anticipated. Um, he's got and and you know, Wilders of and his you know assistant are obviously um the main ones to kind of uh, credit for that. He's got excellent man management skills, um, but he's also managed to put together you know a team that are interesting to watch tactically. Um, I think it's quite hard to tell exactly what Burke needs, but I think this is going to be fascinating to be able to see this. You know, what What do you think? Do you think it'll be interesting to, to kind of watch? Yeah, I think that part of what Burke needed is a team that played quite a specific way. So um, I think in, in Chris Wilder, Sheffield United, try and transition pretty quickly. I think that suits Burke. I don't think he's best suited to... You know, uh, lots of build-up play, lots of you know intricate five to ten yard passes, trying to break the lines that way. I think he just wants to attack the space quickly, mm-hmm. get into one v one situations. And I think Sheffield United have probably done some. I guess, like you said, they've probably hedged their bets on that one. That his skill set matches their style of play. Whereas I think when you yeah. look at some of the the more recent moves, that's maybe been the issue. It's not been. It's not necessarily always been that he isn't a good enough player, as you sort of were alluding to earlier. It's that he's got quite a, a defined skill set. And I guess that sort of pushes on to that topic then. How would you describe Ollie Burke as a player? What what do you think his potential is? What do you think his strengths are? I think, again, that's really, really difficult to, to kind of um, know. But I think, like you point to, maybe this will be a good move in terms of... Um, I don't know, instead of him having to exactly find what his own potential is, perhaps this is the move that kind of helps him fit into something instead. So the thing I was thinking about Sheffield United, right, is that I guess in terms of, you know, as you said, maybe the responsibility for the players, things are going to be quite well defined. Um, So Wilder has said that he sees him as playing through the middle up top, right? So already um, the manager has said, um, and obviously, this has been an issue for Burke throughout his career that you know he's played in different roles and and so on, and has been used in different roles from game to game, you know, and within games as well. So Wilder's kind of said from the start, this is how you're going to be playing, or this is your kind of you know number one role for me. That's a positive. Um, when I've watched Sheffield United uh, last season, the forwards don't have a huge amount of goal scoring responsibility, which again is maybe a positive for Burke. Um, you know, because one of the things that maybe people expected from him, when he kind of burst through was, you know, oh, this is, you know, an attacker with a lot of raw pace and power. Um, so he's going to be able to, you know, score goals. He's, he's going to be the kind of goal scorer that Scotland, you know, haven't had for a little while. But that's not necessarily the role for the forwards at Sheffield United. Um, so that, again, might lighten the load from him, for him a little bit. Um, I think that in saying that, though, there is a hell of a lot of responsibility for the forwards at Sheffield United, both in and out of possession. So, in possession, I think from my kind of watching of them, um, often they have to make quite se- quite unselfish runs to open up space for the midfielders to try and score. Um, they perhaps would need to drift into wide areas to hold the ball up, help with overloads. You know the, the famous uh, overlapping centre backs and so on mm-hmm. to kind of help them um, before any switches. I've also seen like um, McGoldrick, who I guess you know would maybe be a comparable um, positionally uh, to Burke. I've seen him drop off quite deep at times and help recycle possession. Um, so quite a lot of responsibility, um, not, not exactly necessarily a, a simple role. Um, and without the ball, 
I think the the Sheffield United forwards are generally asked to kind of hold um, and not press aggressively, but be really, really aware of passing lanes and blocking those off and being ready to make interceptions. So you have to be very disciplined and always be thinking about and monitoring space. And the thing I was thinking about that is that these are quite presumably quite repetitive um, things to learn. Like it'll be a kind of repetitive nature. You know, you'll be quite drilled in those things, but not only are you drilled as in you're having to do them over and over again, those particular things don't change that often. Um, So you can imagine, for instance, what I mean by that is, right, you would think, say, at RB Leipzig, right, you're going to get lots of coaching. There's going to be a lot of kind of repetitive, repetitive, repetitive coaching of the sort of things that they would do, like pressing, like third-man runs, like interchanges of passes. But there's a lot to take in with those, right? There's lots of different movements. There's quite a lot of things that rely on technical excellence. And at Celtic, you'd imagine things were maybe a little bit looser. Um, there was less kind of repetitive training and specific kind of functional things. Um, and then at Alaves and WBA, he presumably was trained in quite a few different positions um, to be ready for those. I think the benefit at um, Sheffield United might be that presumably the training is going to be, um, you know, it'll end up being like muscle memory maybe for him, you know, that, that things will be very repetitive and drilled into him. And that might be the thing that helps things click for, for Burke if, you know, he's got just these these are your things to do, you know, and, and do them. So uh, it could be possibly a good thing. I also think, like, for instance, the expectations and stuff for goal scoring and things like that will be relatively low, which might help him too. Yeah, I think there, there's lots of really good points that you've pulled out there. And I, I think that, to me, that the, the only other thing that I thought maybe worth adding to this is when I was looking at the, the Sheffield United team, it didn't feel like they had a lot of players with sort of exceptional pace. And I thought that that's that's clearly one of Burke's strengths, right? Is you know being able to to break away quickly, like I mentioned, sure. those one v ones, those quick transitions, etc. Yep. And I think there's there's a value in having someone in your squad that's a little bit different, even if they can't Absolutely. do all the yep. things that you want them to do. So for me, it's just about you know completing the jigsaw of your squad uh, mm-hmm. and having you know as many different eventualities and as many different styles players that can do different things to, to help you um, maintain you know a high level of performance in the Premier League. So mm-hmm. I, I think you've, you've summarised Buck really well and, and what we might expect. So I guess just finally then, what, what do you think the sort of expectations would be for Burke with Sheffield United this season? Do you think he'll be a sort of impact player off the bench or do you think he's got an opportunity at regular first team minutes? Um, I think somewhere in between the two. I, I think so. Sheffield United played tonight. This is Monday night, and he didn't go off the bench. They lost two 0 to Wolves, but you know it's his first time um, on the bench for him. So you know you've got to expect a, a slow start. I think he'll probably end up being a solid squad player this season. Pro- probably won't be a starter most of the time, but like you say, he gives them that something different. Um, I think that'll be fine for him. You know, I, I think that probably we'll see him developing well across the length of the season in terms of doing what's asked. Um, he'll probably only score about like three goals max, so people up here will think he's a flop. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, we would expect that he'll find it a good fit in terms of, you know, kind of personalities and, you know, a, a place to be as a club. Um, and I think this might be the season that makes him kind of 
you know, put puts him on course to start carving out a kind of reasonable career. Career, you know, yeah. maybe gives him that kind of level of stability, and and maybe we can think about you know. He doesn't need to be, you know, a kind of superstar that may be going for, you know, ten million pounds or whatever to RB Leipzig in your teens makes people think you're going to be, but you can still have a good career. Yeah, you know? and you know, it's okay, you know, to have a good career. I think it's really, you know? really interesting as well. You mentioned the point about up here where people's perceptions of him, and I think that might be enhanced a little bit this year as well because I I have a feeling that Burke's more likely to play against the. You know the top class opposition mm. that are going to dominate possession. I think Burks sure. are more likely to play against your Man Cities, Arsenal, Liverpool, mm-hmm. etc. Whereas they're gonna, he's going to have little of the ball. He's going to be against sure. top, top class opposition, but his skill set yep. is going to be, you know, win the ball back if you can, transition really quickly. You know, be a bit of a nuisance. Um, and I think combined Andy Robertson and, and scoring. That's yeah. it. That's it. Um, <laughs> Easy, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, I think it's just we've got to take it in the context of you know over the course of the season and maybe not just off of the the, the odd game sure. here and there that we'll see him play. So yep. definitely one to be excited for, I think, and I think it's it's a uh, it's the the right horse for the right course. So um, yeah. interested to see how that one pans out. So we've covered mm-hmm. two of our three topics tonight, and we said we would go back to some of the domestic action that happened over the weekend in case you've been living under a rock uh just a quick recap of the of the results so rangers were comfortable 4-0 victors over dundee united aberdeen were 1-0 victory over kilmarnock with ross mccrory getting his first goal hamilton had a an excellent comeback against Livingston with a 2-1 win with a late uh goal from monroe was it and Celtic 5-0 victors over Ross County and Hibs with a 3-0 victory over St Mirren as well. St Mirren obviously with that crazy COVID uh, case in their goalkeeping. Um, yeah, so I guess to, we won't go into it specifically, but any of the results stand out to you before we get on to Motherwell St Johnston one? Uh, well, the Hamilton one, I think, was a really impressive uh, result for them. I think from the sounds of it, Hamilton struggled in the first half. Um, but obviously showed a lot, a lot of resilience to come back and get that win. Um, apart from that, yeah, just kind of, I don't know, um, a fairly dramatic game for St Mirren and Hibs. Pity, I guess, for St Mirren that they couldn't get the Para Hills Knights goalkeeper over instead of Bobby's Lamal, <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> love it. I love it. So, yeah, I guess moving on to our, our match in focus then. So we said we would look at Motherwell versus St Johnston and I guess just before we go into the the action itself, talk me through your sort of thoughts on on both these teams so far, how their season's been. Let's start with Motherwell one. Sure. Uh, Well, of course, this ended up being Motherwell's first win of the season. Um, They obviously hadn't been great so far. Um, I think there have been some slight elements of being unfortunate when you kind of look at the stats. So they'd only scored two goals before this game, but they had a total XG of about 6.5 and their expected goals difference per game would put them solidly in mid-table but I think it's fair to say that they've not been getting good chances at all Um, I had a glance at a shot map and it's kind of like there's a force field about 8 yards out, nothing closer in Um, they are the most reliant on set pieces team in the league, so 37% of their expected goals comes from set pieces um, next highest uh, kind of source of their XG is build-up attacks, which are attacks with 
more than four passes per an attempt starting in their own half. So potentially relatively kind of slow ways to attack. 26.90% of their XG comes from that. And they get the lowest percentage of their XG um, from offensive attacks, which are ones where there's more than four passes before the attempt, but they start in the opposition half. Um, they get the lowest percentage of their XG from those in the whole league. Um, so that's just a little bit of information about Motherwell. I, I think it was really, really important that they got this win. I mean, obviously, you know, sitting bottom, but it's a very big week for them. So they got their European tie this Thursday. Yeah. Then they've got Aberdeen away on Sunday, and then their next game is Rangers away the week after that. So it's a kind of string of um, two very tough games, at least, and, and one kind of very important game with the, the match against Colrane. So a, a difficult start from Motherwell. Um, in terms of St Johnston, so they have uh, two wins, even including the game at the weekend, but only four goals in seven games. Um, I think just their games with Rangers and Kilmarnock had resulted in either them or their opponent scoring more than one goal in the game. So I uh, hope their fan TV prices aren't too high because uh, <laughs> it's not a lot of goal-scoring entertainment on uh, offer there. Um, but their expected goals difference per game actually puts them third in the league. Um, they have the third most shots from open play in the league in total. Um and they had only scored three goals before this game, but they had an expected goals of seven. So even though I'm kind of rubbishing them for the amount of entertainment, but actually that might not be really true. There are, you know, there are chances in St. Johnston games. Um, but they also get most of their expected goals from set pieces, with 31.7% of their XG coming that way. Um, but they get their second highest share from offensive attacks. So those were ones where there's more than four passes before the attempt, but it starts in the opposition half um, with 24.7% of their expecting goals coming that way. And build up the attacks. Remember, that's ones that start in their own half, but have more than four passes um, are the their lowest, um, which is uh, actually the third lowest in the league. They have 12.5% of their XG coming that way. So just a wee bit of detail uh, about Motherwell and St. Johnston there. I guess overall in general terms, obviously it's been a very bad start to the season for Motherwell. Um, St. Johnston have done okay, particularly with the appointment of a new manager, I guess you would say. What about you? Yeah, I, I think uh, it just sort of leads me on to the next sort of point. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we released our, our first power rankings and Robinson was bought of them. I think Cam Davidson just finished in the top half um, with sort of comments around about a lot of the things you've already mentioned, I think, you know, Davidson being a new manager, taking on the, the mantle from, from Tommy Wright, it, you know, it could easily be quite a um, a turnaround. It could be quite difficult with considering how long Tommy Wright was there. He was a, a club legend, but Davidson being an ex-player, I think it was probably quite a sensible move from St. Johnson, actually, someone who, mm. who knows the club and the fans can get behind pretty quickly. So I think there's been some positives there. I think they, they still look fairly well drilled. They, there's some things that we'll get onto when we, we talk about the, the game itself. But yeah, I'm quite positive about Calm Davidson as an appointment and I'm interested to see how that one uh, pans out. For As for Robinson, um, I guess like you mentioned, obviously a very disappointing start. I, I, I was just wondering, and we'll maybe get onto it as well, but do you think that they're maybe struggling for almost having too many options now in their squad? Um, I wonder because they've changed sort of style um, from you know and set up I think three times already this season. Do you think that's maybe mm. a bit of a a panic, or do you think that's just a still trying to get used to having this many players available to you? Any thoughts on that? Just briefly, on 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that um, in terms of your power rankings, first of all, and Robinson, I think the kind of context matters with these kind of things. So, you know, lots of people might have expected Motherwell to be third or fourth by the end of the season. And obviously it's very early. They could still end up there. But I think this is maybe just generally a lesson for everybody that it's, uh, it's a very difficult league to predict out with the top two, really. Um, and in terms of what you were saying about the kind of squad makeup, well, yeah, we, we would tend to praise Motherwell for their kind of good overall club management, including recruitment. But I think there's kind of some issues with almost every part of the team. And, and maybe, like you say, one of the issues is that... Um, it's maybe not clear in some of those areas exactly who the kind of first choice is. And then maybe that leads to a little bit of uncertainty in terms of what setup to use. And then I've kind of felt it's a sort of natural thing, right? When, you know, you're bottom of the league and things aren't going your way, that to an extent Robinson has somewhat turned on the players at times. Um, and maybe that's then led to him wanting to change system to kind of, you know, put some of the blame onto the players in some way and stuff. But I guess just to kind of go through them, so goalkeeper, right? Um, obviously the departure of Gillespie was not a great thing. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that Carson hasn't been good, um, but still not certain about him. It's a wee bit of a risk, I think, to um, take to you know choose a goalkeeper who's been out from the game for so long. Obviously, for you know unfortunate, sad reasons due to his injury. But I still did really think that you know Motherwell should be looking at somebody who would be a you know, a clear starting goalkeeper for this season in the future, given that Gillespie yep. was going. Um, fullbacks, fullbacks have been an issue for them. Um, obviously, they managed to bring in O'Donnell, but it seems like such a stopgap thing. You know, he's just there till January. Um, and the other fullbacks that they've got in, I think, particularly maybe for a team that would want to be up at the top end of the table, maybe not good enough, really, um, particularly not in terms of possession. Um, midfield, well, there's issues now, right? So Donnelly's out injured till the new year. Um, Turnbull's obviously moved on. Uh, Campbell, you have his contract ending next summer. So, you know, that, that's a wee bit um, of a, a problem. And then up front, well, they've got all these wingers, but they're not playing them now. I don't know if they're going to continue going with the kind of 5-3-2 or if that was just because they were playing Celtic and then, you know, St. Johnston, who uses a three at the back. But if they're going to go that way, they've got, you know, Hasty, Seedorf, etc. Maybe some yeah. amount of favour, maybe not performing as well as they could do, but not using them. And they've got, what, like four centre-forwards now? Yeah. But you wouldn't really be sure who would be the the guy, you know, yeah. who, who's your starter that's going to, you know, score double digits. So, yeah, um, some problems throughout the squad. I, I guess the question I was going to put back to you on that, Gavin, was... Um, if you had to choose, right, I guess maybe if you're going to say who Motherwell's three best players are at the moment, right, you might say Campbell and Gallagher maybe, yep. but who who else? I th- Who's next? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the one for me that I would go to is Liam Polworth, but it's not, okay. it's, it's not, I think after that, I, I've, I like Polworth for a number of years now, but I think you're right though to call that out. I think maybe after that, there's a huge bit of a drop off. Kind of drop off yeah. and, and yep. like, you know, like kind of this kind of wishy washy depth. Yep. Where you're kind of not too sure, right, I would definitely have that guy in this team. Yep. You know, like it's just all a wee bit kind of hmm, I'm not sure. And and I guess the, the thing that you would come on to with that is right, the Turnbull money. Um so, you know, what what are they gonna do? What they can they do? And it sort of comes back to maybe what we'd spoken about with Dykes before that you know, your your idea was that you maybe try and pick just one or two pieces 
that you can go out and get that really improves your team, which seemed like it would be a really smart thing for Motherwell to do. But then I guess my counter to that was it's probably actually quite hard to spend this money if you're a Mm -hmm. club like this level in Scotland. It's probably difficult to, you know, you probably hit a ceiling where, yeah, you, you, you're you probably wanting to do it. Um, but, and, and obviously, you know, you, you hope that you have good recruitment and, and scouts and stuff and, you know, have those options. But maybe it's just, you know, very difficult to... Um, Absolutely, you know, yeah. ...really move, you know, the, the needle for your team. Um, so, you know, it's a big, big decision to sell Turnbull. And I, I guess, you know, obviously they were at the point where they were going to and, and you, you hope to effectively do that at points when you're a team like Motherwell... But um, I don't know. Yeah, I, think- I, I would be a wee bit worried if, if, yeah, they managed to sell them and they've got all that money. But then, just can you do anything really with it to improve yeah. the team? Pop? Yeah, no, I think no. I think it's definitely a fair challenge, and it's something that Motherwell will need to address. I think the the key for me, I think you, you called out as well. I think they've got sort of four strikers, and it's not really clear who you're relying on the most or where your goals are going to come from. They're they are obviously slightly different in terms of style of play, but I am just a little bit worried about that position. I think that does need to be addressed. I think you can see it in the results as well. But I guess let's move on to the action for now because I think you know recruitment and the things that Motherwell could do is something that we could probably spend quite a while talking about. But mm. for now, let's move to the the game where um, at Fair Park where Motherwell were one 0 victors, and it was an early Alan Campbell goal that sealed the points for Motherwell. Talk me through the sort of goal from Alan Campbell and what you've seen. Yeah, um, so the this was an exceptional goal, I think, for Campbell and quite a week for him um, because, of course, he scored the winner for Scotland under-21s in Lithuania and then you know, his goal against St Johnston got his club their first league win of the season. Uh, they must be absolutely desperate to get him to renew his contract. So I guess the other thing you would say about the Turnbull money is maybe you try and use a lot of that Maybe you try not to be too worried about the rest of the squad getting too annoyed if you give him a big wage as well. Yep. Um, I don't know. Um, I would probably be willing to pay him a fair bit a week, even if it's just for the purpose of essentially securing him so I can then sell him, sell him next summer or yep. whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, so in terms of the goal, right, it's only five minutes in and Campbell shows real kind of aggression and intent to kind of get there for what's basically a second ball, you know, in, at the kind of edge of the, you know, defensive third for St. Johnston. Really nice use of his body to kind of shield things, smart turn into space, good ball carrying. I felt like he kind of kept a good stride, managed to get on his right foot and quite smartly kind of move it across the defender so that the defender was kind of either going to have to bring him down or just let him shoot. And it's a lovely kind of long range strike into the far kind of bottom corner. Um, it is, of course, very badly defended throughout. You know, the yep. two midfielders around the ball are... Um, both get um, the wrong side of the ball. Um, uh, then the centre backs are kind of all, you know, very flat and stepping off, and don't kind of nobody moves up to challenge things or squeeze up on Campbell. And I, I think even the goalkeeper could maybe do better. It is a really nicely hit, kind of hit into the far corner, but it's, it's a fair distance out. But yeah, a, a great goal. And I, I think the key thing with this match is that the goal and the timing of the goal really make this game. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll probably come on to the fact that you know St Johnston, in terms of the kind of stats and so on, dominated this match. But they dominated the match mainly because Motherwell scored after five minutes, and yeah. then just decided to let St Johnston have the ball in you know kind of areas they weren't too 
concerned about and kind of defended aggressively when they need to. And, and Robinson was very quick to praise his players for that afterwards. But I think it's a key kind of takeaway for Muddle to think about that, you know, was it that the players were exceptional at that? Or was it just that that was what the kind of early goal made them do? And then St. Johnston weren't that good at it, you know? Um, yeah, what did you think of the goal? Were you impressed? Yeah, obviously I think you've, you've absolutely nailed that to a T. I was... I was... Gonna say though that I think the key thing for me is if you watch David Witherspoon for this goal, uh, I don't think he's a central midfielder, uh, and I think he didn't look comfortable in the, the sort of central area or, or particularly know what is what his expectation was in that situation. I just felt he didn't look like someone that is a ball winner uh, in that sort of engine room, and I felt that Campbell was it was really easy to get away from him. He didn't have to have a real burst of pace. Witherspoon sort of sort of just, uh, I guess, jockeyed him, you know, mm. towards the box. And then, even so, he's one of my favourites. Jamie McCart, I thought, could have been a bit more aggressive and, you know, pushed out to try and block the, the shot and goal. I thought he didn't know whether to, you know, to push yep. forward or whether to, to you know, keep his line. And I guess that's maybe one of the challenges with three at the back. You know, you need a really high level of communication. Um, and I think that, that specific instance, it just played against him. And I, I do think as well, you know, that this goal's received a lot of credit, but there's a lot of errors, and I do think as well that uh, Parish probably could have done better, as you sort of alluded to as well. Mm. So for me, there's good goal for Campbell, good to see, um, good week for him, but the goal itself has a lot of question marks over St Johnson. Um, and then I guess you're you're right. You you mentioned that you know St Johnson had the the lion's share of chances, the lion's share of possession, and I guess there was there was something. I think it was it was not too long after the goal where. I think it was the first real opportunity. I think it was a sloppy pass by Ricky Lamy, who I think neither of us are overly enamoured with. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a sloppy pass where Michael O'Halloran has the chance um, where he's one-on-one. I know it's, like, close to Carson, but for me, do you think that he maybe could have been, I guess, just aware there and just tapped that to Henry, who's then got a tap in? I, I thought, I know it happened really quickly, mm. but... I think for me, yeah. a, a smart player there realizes the angle he's at, the situation, and could have just squared it into, you know, tapped it to Henry, who's then got an open goal. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I guess uh, first I'll shout out to Ricky Lamy for being St Johnston's chief creator in this match. <laughs> <laughs> so he made three uh, shooting opportunities for St Johnston throughout this game, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I've not been wowed by Lamy's start to the season. Um, and obviously, a lot of what I'm about to say plays into stylistic choices by teams and stuff. But I do remember, you know, when he was at Livingston, he had the lowest pass completion percentage in the whole league, uh, out with goalkeepers. <laughs> um, it was, like, incredibly low uh, for, like, two seasons running, if I remember right. Anyway, um, yeah, in this situation, um, I, I, that's maybe a fair thing to suggest that O'Halloran should have... Um, chosen a different option. I think Henry got too close to him. I think that Henry should have held his run a little bit more and given him a little bit more space. I think Henry thinks that he can get onto the ball and shoot before O'Halloran does, and, and that kind of mucks it up a wee bit for, for them. Um, and I think given how close he is and that it's not really clear to me that Henry has a really, really great angle on the shot because of where he's moved to, I'd I'd probably say that O'Halloran should shoot. I mean, look, you're you know you're eight, this is a theme throughout this game that there's quite a few chances where I think I've seen people on Twitter or whatever say, well, you should have made the better pass or whatever. I think with most of them, I'm saying 
you should shoot, but you should shoot better. You know, I okay. know that's easy to say, but that, that I, I think less fannying about and more just being a, a bit bit more of a killer, um, as Jose Mourinho would say um, <laughs> for St Johnston players. But um, yeah, not not the first kind of instance of that sort. And but I think the kind of the the one other thing I would say about it though that kind of sticks out for me, given that you're saying that he should have maybe passed it, is that. Um, St Johnston didn't make one pass within the Motherwell box in this game, um, which was quite interesting. Yeah. I looked at where all the pass locations are, and St Johnston had sixty percent possession almost, which is huge, right? Motherwell had less possession this game than they had against Celtic in the game that you know they got lost, got got beaten quite convincingly um, in their match previously. Obviously, the game state plays into this, um, but you know, and St Johnston took double the amount of shots that Motherwell did. But St Johnston didn't manage a single pass within the Motherwell box that connected. I don't think from I've not seen stats on this, but from watching the game, I don't think they took a single touch within within the box that wasn't either a shot or the the touch immediately preceding a shot. Um, and yeah, the, do do you want? Shall we go through some more of the chances and we'll yeah, talk I guess, through our? Through I, I get. Yeah, I guess you, you've called out some interesting things there, and it, it was a bit of a theme I felt throughout the game, but moving on to the sort of next opportunity that I want to discuss was it was, a, I think it was the Craig Conway free kick uh, into okay. the box where uh, our guy Ricky Lamy yep. sort of just aimlessly headers it to David Witherspoon, who, yeah. for whatever reason, tried to lob hmm. Trevor Carson when there was clearly you know a number of bodies on the line. It would have had to be a very, very accurate lob yeah. for this to go in. I really don't understand why Witherspoon just doesn't try and hit that low and hard. You maybe get a deflection. Just seemed like a really poor choice, and that was the sort of theme that I felt it was. It was decision making totally. that that really impacted St. Johnson in this game. Decision making was shooting a, a lot yeah. as well, and yeah. I was kind of wondering whether. I mean, obviously, it's very easy to say that from the sidelines and stuff, but whether some of it was confidence and and maybe overthinking the decision a wee bit. Um, but yeah, in that one, you're you're right, absolutely. Lammy um, got in a good position to make the header, but then you know the header's just into a silly zone. And um, yeah, Wallerspoon, I'm with you. You know, drive that, hit some power on it, see what happens when you put it into the kind of thicket of bodies, right? You know. Um, but it could have been much better. Yeah. That could have been a goal for St Johnston. The next one that I saw was the Callum Hendry um, header from McNamara's cross when yep. Hendry was about eight yep. yards out. Um, Hendry's yet to score in the league, but he has, as that header shows, um, been getting to some good positions. You know, if he keeps doing his thing, he he will get some goals. Um, and McNamara, I think, has been one of St Johnston's standout players for the yeah. season so far. It was a really Absolutely. nice cross. This is just an unfortunate misconnect, you know. Um, but again, it's the sort of chance where it's not that likely to score, right? You know, if you repeat that sort of chance, um, that sort of cross, uh, you know, ten times in a game, Henry's only going to get free that way one time, you know. Yeah. And it's a header from eight yards out. There's a high chance you're going to misconnect and miss or whatever, you know. So again, he should have done better, but those are not necessarily the type of chances that you score from. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think just quickly on McNamara though, I think that he he shows some some real potential. I, I was impressed with some of his deliveries. I felt that some of his movement yep. was really smart, and a player that I'm actually quite excited to see a little bit more of when he came in as a you know a Millwall reserve loan. wasn't mm-hmm. again too excited about that move, but I think he's got a, a real technical ability and looks like a yep. player that can get you know smart crosses into the box and something that I'd be interested to see at. 
and this is where maybe it's a little bit difficult for St Johnston, but I think they maybe need to address the striking situation. I do like Calum Hendry, I like his work rate, I like his effort, but I think they need an actual goal scorer, and this game maybe yeah. proved that a bit. And I think the penalty box striker, right? Yeah. Even just the fact that they didn't really have the touches in the box makes me think, you know, if you had somebody who's more of a, you know, somebody that wants to be a bit of a poacher, it might be, you know, or not even just a poacher, but, you know, a, a kind of target in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. Again, I think in the the second half, I think we've seen an early chance for Henry again, where it was a McNamara ball in, but then we've seen another dodgy clearance from uh, Ricky Lamy where the ball breaks to Henry and, uh, this one, I think it was at the edge of the box, and, and this is where decision-making came in again. Henry's you can see that he's just got his sort of head down. He's not really looking up, and he's just going to hit the ball as hard as he can towards goal. And for me, that was that was just another example of decision-making mm. issues for St Johnston, whereas actually if Henry's maybe a little bit more aware of the situation, they can try and actually you know, have a bit of a pattern of play rather than uh, you know just a, a wild attempt on goal. Um, but I just wanted to call it again. That was a, another error for Ricky Lamy, and sure. I think he's he's someone that I think over the course of the season could be a real weak link for for Motherwell. I think seems to be the sort of and there was sorry, carry on. There was the other one for the Stevie May chance as well, right? Yep. So uh, there was a kind of clipped pass by McNamara sort of down the line into the box, and Lamy kind of swung and, and missed it, and Stevie May got through and and kind of screwed it wide of the far post. And I, I, again, that that was one that I was kind of mentioning earlier, where there was quite a lot of people kind of online suggesting that May should maybe have squared it um, instead of taking a shot on. I, I think that's entirely wrong. You know, he was at a wee bit of an angle, but he's about six yards out. Yeah. Um. I think you just hammer that one on target, and it's going in. It reminded me a wee bit of I don't know if you remember, but um, David Luiz versus Manchester City recently. Mm-hmm. Um. But say recently, um, last season or whatever when uh, there was a ball into the box and he kind of missed it in a similar way, but then Raheem Sterling absolutely lashed it into the goal. Um, and I think that's kind of what May should have done. Um, and uh, yeah, as you said, um, another error by Lamy. Um, and different types of errors in this game, right? So those were like, you know, the pass back one was just, I don't know, a bit of a brain fart and, and kind of poor connection, bad technique. The header is just not thinking about where you're going to do things to, you know, what what's the kind of consequences of this, you know, action. And then the the one in the box was just body shape. Yeah. And not being prepared for what's going to happen, you know, and, and uh, yeah, not great. <laughs> definitely, definitely wasn't great. I think there was, I, I, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of repeatability there. I think one thing, you know, just before we, we wrap up that this sort of game itself, but I, I felt that maybe St Johnston got a little bit too predictable with everything coming down the one side with Conway and yeah. McNamara. Um, Absolutely. Maybe that was that was an opportunity for them to, if they wanted to create, maybe try and catch Motherwell off guard by going down the other side, or you know, trying to do something a little bit different. And obviously, Conway and McNamara both put in some some really nice balls, but it just got a little bit predictable. Um, well, it, there's also the fact that they might have thought that Lamy and McGinley were the kind of weak links to attack, you know. So true, that's I guess. kind of why they're thinking to go that down that side. But yeah, I, I don't disagree. You know, switch up. But that that's maybe where I was thinking as well for St Johnston about this, right? So um, maybe part of the problem for St Johnston is the struggle to create if you sit off them. 
So maybe that's part of the problem that you encounter if you play three at the back, right? Which yeah. they've kind of stuck with lately. So you have a little bit of a lack of bodies ahead of the ball. Um, also, you, you're maybe not stretching the pitch wide enough. So you've obviously got McNamara and um, Conway on the right. But if maybe on the left you don't have that kind of similar kind of threat, then you know it means that the opposition aren't going to struggle too much. You, you're you not moving them about. You know They can sit in quite deep with that five at the back that Motherwell had. So, you know, maybe St. John's need to think about if you are chasing the game or if you are um, playing against somebody that's sitting deep, is a formation change going to work? And, and like we said, maybe a different type of centre forward. Um, the, the other thing I was going to just briefly say about this match is this is a sort of game that shows how looking at, you know, some stats such as expected goals and shots in a single game can be unhelpful in some ways because the game state kind of um you know affected it so much. However, it's also helpful in kind of showing us that, you know, St Johnston do struggle if, you know, you sit off them in those kind of scenarios. So it's an interesting one to have as much as it, it wasn't the most entertaining game to choose and sit through, um, it was a kind of interesting one in terms of that. And, and the other thing I, I also wanted to think about is that um I wonder whether this is really the shape that Motherwell want to play moving forward. So three at the back, maybe they only picked that because they were playing Celtic and then St Johnston. It'll be really interesting to see what they do against Coleraine on Thursday. And then Aberdeen, um, who I don't think are going to be playing, well, have moved sort of away maybe from the, the three re- recently. Yeah. Um, or maybe they'll flip back into it. Um, anyway, just be interesting to see what Motherwell do going forward. You know, because I don't think... Um, I don't think this game necessarily fixed things. If you see what I mean, yeah, you know, agree. sometimes you get a little bit of a false read from getting a, a win. Um, Absolutely, and, you know, we'll see. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a, a repeatable way to get results. Uh, Precisely. Yeah. So, yep. so yeah, um, I guess you know, interesting to see how things develop. You obviously covered that. Who Motherwell have got uh, some difficult fixtures with Aberdeen and Rangers. St Johnson, on the other hand, face I think is Ross County and then Livingston. So games that will they will imagine if we do the similar sort of things that we've done against Motherwell, you know, it should go in our favour. But definitely some question marks still over St Johnston and Callum Davidson. Uh on to uh there's three Scottish teams in, in the Europa League uh this Thursday with mm. uh Aberdeen against Viking, uh Motherwell against Coleraine, Rangers against Lincoln Red Imps. Just before we wrap up, give me a prediction how many how many uh or how many teams are going through from from those three? Well, we said we were going to be positive on this episode, didn't we? Um, so I've got no choice but to say the positivity extends to us getting three wins, but not bringing back any positive cases of COVID-19 from the trips out of the country. Um, so yeah, three wins for me out of three. Three wins, no COVID. We love to see it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I guess that's us for tonight's episode and we appreciate everyone that's been listening i'd highly recommend if you've enjoyed this podcast head over to purefitball.com as we've had a an influx of articles over the last sort of week um or so and we've got quite a lot of content planned for the next week as well so keep your eyes peeled on that and thank you for listening uh and Owen, before you sign off where can the listeners get you uh you can find me online at owen james brown on twitter great and Yeah, uh, thank you for listening and we'll be back soon.